So getting to know Joseph Rios and exploring his book Shadow Boxing really meant a lot to me. Um, mostly because his book is really rooted in working class politics and exploring the experiences and the stories of the disregarded. And it really centered me back into how I grew up and where I grew up and some experiences that have happened thereafter that you know will come up in the recording. So I'm really happy to present this podcast with Joseph Rios again. Uh, he just finished a book called Shadow Boxing and he's on a book tour. And so Sean Webster, a friend of mine here in Minneapolis, brought him out and we were able to have, he was able to do both a reading, right? So the first 15 minutes of the podcast or so are a reading. And then we shift over into a Q&A sort of podcast conversation with me and Joseph. And it was just, it was really just, I don't know how else to describe it, but it just felt amazing to be in dialogue with him and sort of bring in the crowd because I've never had an audience before and just see what sort of magic would develop, right? Like, I don't necessarily have a plan for these conversations. I just have hopes and intentions and it's not often the case that those hopes and intentions really articulate themselves uh, in a meaningful way and I really think it happened here. Ars Poetica, Three Generations. Clovis, California. 70 years later, a great-grandson called Josefo built a treehouse on the corner of 8th and DeWitt. He laid three two-by-four arms across branches and hammered a wide piece of plywood to make a floor. When he finished, he sprawled across the board and fell asleep. In his sleep, he rolled off the platform. For a moment, he saw the branches going by him on all sides. The few noteworthy events of his life did not suddenly flash through his mind. This was not a dream. Josefo collided with a limb and tumbled to the grass below. The fall knocked the wind out of him. He laid there gasping on the lawn. No one saw him and no one could hear him. When he regained his breath, he got back up, to, he got back up and climbed into the tree. To Josefo, this history is common knowledge. If you asked him, he would tell you, but you wouldn't believe him. This is uh, the book Shadowboxing. It's my debut collection of poems. I am overjoyed to, uh, to meet the artist for the first time, David Rathman. Was the, he's from Minneapolis. Um, I saw his work uh, at the Walker when I was here on the residency at the Anderson Center. And uh, the Loft, um, an open book, we're doing a art book festival here. And one of the fellow residents at the Anderson Center came out from Red Wing out this way and invited me to come with him for the weekend. And um, so I got to see this space and then also go to the Walker and see David's work there. And um, that was two years ago, and when, uh, maybe about six-ish six months ago, the press asked what image would I think about wanting to go on the cover. I sent them three or four of, the Im of those images of, of David's, and they said, these are great. Uh, do you think the artist would let us use them? And um, I said, well, I've never met him. Let's let's see, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I emailed him, and and uh, he graciously gave us the permission to use this image. And I really think it um, just pulls pulls the book together in a really beautiful way. So, um, really thankful to to you for that. Um, Josefo chats with Chewy. Act one, scene one. Semi-truck, cigarettes, talk radio, jerking transmission, La Virgen de Guadalupe, Fresno is in the middle of everywhere. Larry Levis. Still, even when they laughed, they laughed in Spanish. 
Chewy. Hey, so you go to school and shit, huh? Jose Yeah. Yo, what you want to do with that? I want to be a writer. No, my man, write about what? I don't know, whatever, fool. Yo, you making money doing that? Nah, not really. So why the hell you do it? Fuck if I know. Yo, you probably do it for the pussy. Don't lie, fucker. Man, just drive the fucking truck. No, my miss, I knew it. The fuck out of here. Yo, you gonna write about me? Fuck you. Hey, puto, I'd make a good character, man. You should write about me. Maybe. Don't fuck around. And said, yo, you gonna write about me? I just did. <laughs> um, I grew up in Fresno, California. Um, I was born in Clovis, which is like a small suburb town um, outside of Fresno. And well, they're more or less connected. Um, and um, my family's been there since about 1910. My great grandfather came from uh, Michoacan, La Piedad, Michoacan, came, and came to Fresno. And um, my family has lived on the same corner. Um, that first piece I read, uh, kind of alluded to that fact. Uh, we've lived on the same corner of 8th and DeWitt in downtown Clovis, Old Town Clovis since uh, as early as 1926, where my grandmother was born there. Um, since then, three different houses have been built, raised, built and raised on that same piece of land. Um, and my grandfather's family moved in next door in 1938, and then around the mid-60s, the three lots became one and uh, built one house on top of it. Uh, and it's as, early as, late, or as early as 2008, we've had the most recent home built on that same piece of land. So my grandmother was born there. Um, I like to think that it's, she was born right near what we have, uh, the Rose Garden now, and she also passed away there uh, in the house uh, about three or four years ago. Um, so, um, uh, so Fresno, um, for those of you, many of you in the room know about the literary tradition that comes out of Fresno, and it's kind of uh, a joy to come out of there as a poet um, and have and know that poets like Juan Felipe Herrera, our most recent poet laureate, um, and Phil Levine, the previous poet laureate, who's noted for being from Detroit but spent the last maybe 50 years of his life living in Fresno, um, and a whole host of others, Gary Soto. Um, it's also from Fresno and, um, and, and many, 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 many others that are currently working poets that uh, I got to work with are also from there. And, um, and I was, uh, when we were talking earlier today, I was at UMN Minnesota, there was, um, somebody mentioned like this sort of working class poetics that comes, that see, they can see in the work. And um, coming from Fresno and coming from the tradition of the poets that are from there, it's very hard not to be come from enter into poetry from a working class perspective. Um, the two poets I mentioned first, Phil Levine and Juan, Juan Felipe, you know, um, made their names writing about working people and from the perspective of working people. Um, and so I had great models, I guess, in, in how to how to write poems. It, I didn't even have to think about it. If I if I didn't see it as <clears throat> breaking any rules um, to write from um, the voices of uh, these working people that I grew up with. Um, I'll read something else. This is a, 
sort of like my ode to Fresno. Um, it's called South Paw Curse, and I dedicate it to two, uh, two artist brothers, um, for Ramiro and Victor Martinez. Ramiro is a muralist uh, who lives in Fresno and, and scratches a living as a muralist uh, in Fresno. And his brother, Victor, uh, is, uh, was uh, an author, was the first Chicano to win the National Book Award uh, for his novel, um, Parrot in the Oven, which came out in 1996, and um, left Fresno uh, you know, as an adult and went to San Francisco, and uh, was actually a contemporary and good friend of Juan Felipe's, and um, they were both at Stanford at the same time. Um, I'll just read this now. Um, South Park Curse. To begin, Fresno, y también un fresno. Weeping a stench of ash exhausted by fumes and cut grass you can't smell from the I-5. Look beyond Arax's tails at the thumb pressed firmly upon two pruning arms, tearing through the sinuous shoulders of smoking palm fronds you mistake for Fireball, Mendota, or maybe Kerman. Later, the spilled milk sours when little Josefo's hands return from the hoe with calluses of brown skin hardened over bloody soil, just like the lunar on Tia's face. Two, the parrot still migrates with the geese along the old Golden State toward the water treatment plant on Jensen. Knobs of, knobs of aborted bulbs form praying fingers instead of irises. Delfino trims his nails against the fan blade of his work truck. The wailing escapes through the broken windows into a horror of muted dust, 5W30 and light. Later, Ramiro parks his elliptical bike in Tokyo Garden, goes inside and drinks two bottles of warm sake and reads Parrot in the Oven in the voice of Burgess Meredith. His mouth labors over words like tomato and lightning. He leaves rubbing his throat still with much more to say. Three, an airplane drops a white cloud upon brown bodies. Powder sifts gently onto eyebrows, wrists, and shoelaces. Mother instructs small children to hide under vines. The good ones die before 40. The rest of us wake up with swollen feet and nosebleeds. Later, Osefo kicks an empty bottle across the alley, then vomits beneath a honeybee with four sagging breasts. Ramiro searches for Aloy above scaffolding at Broadway. Victor appears behind the orange glove in American spirit. A police siren screams again, again, and again. Does no one else hear that? Four, the Central Valley is an aging fruit tree breaking concrete with the knuckles of its toes. The sidewalks stay warm under naked feet, slapping from one street lamp to the next. The parrot places his head in the oven to escape the cancer hiding in every breath. When eulogized, the priest will mistake this for, mere, for mercy. Later, carved letters appear on an ash tree that must outgrow its ambivalence. The letters read, I am the American way. Addendum. Some years ago, a student at City College rented a space at Broadway Studios in downtown Fresno. There, the student met Ramiro, noted painter, muralist, philosopher, and brother to the poet Victor Martinez. One late evening in the studio, Victor came to visit. Mito made the, Vino made, Mito made the introduction. Hey, Vic, meet my friend. Hey, he, uh, he writes poems too. The three men walked to a nearby liquor store and bought 32-ounce bottles of Bud Ice. Somewhere on the Fulton Mall, a street couple argued in an empty fountain. When the three finished the first round, they walked back to the liquor store and bought more. They enacted this ritual several times before the night's end. The student paid close attention, laughed, and contributed when able. 
Mito liked to talk about the look of the San Joaquin River before the dams and the canals, the wildlife, the marshland, the tabletop mountains, the seashells still coating the valley floor. Victor spoke very little throughout the night, but everything he said was in a low glass-packed tenor, like a work truck idling in an oil-spotted driveway, puffing out rhythmic clouds of exhaust into the cold morning air. The student passed out on a spinning couch chair in the hallway between a row of closed studio spaces. The Martinez men skipped out. Their voices and laughter echoed off the brick warehouse walls. The wrought iron door slammed hard behind them, vibrating loudly at first and then softly in its jam. One year later, Victor was dead. Um, Victor like struggled his whole life with this like throat ailment that he got from like childhood working in the fields and inhaling pesticides and um, eventually developed into a, like a very acute form of cancer that, that you know, took him out like, um, before he was 50, I think. Um, but, but every time he talked, like he didn't really talk that much, but when he talked, he was like really like, you know, garbled out, you know, something. And, um, but incredible book, Paired in the Oven. Um, it was, I was about maybe 17 when I first read it. And it was one of the few times where I started a book at night and didn't go to sleep until I finished it. Um, cool. So this is, a, this is an ode to the, a radio DJ from Southern California out in the Southwest to uh, Texas, Nevada, New Mexico. His name is Art LeBeau. Uh, <laughs> Art LeBeau, and he plays like, you know, lowrider oldies and stuff like that. Um, but um, he's been on the radio now for like 70 years, um, and um, yeah, still kicking. I don't know. I don't know. He's like 80 plus years old, um, playing the same songs, playing the same jams for the last 50 years. Back when the oldies weren't even oldies, like he was still playing the song. <laughs> he just kept playing that same playlist. Uh, <laughs> um, so this one's called, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> little, An little Anthony on the outside, on the outside, car speakers, the town I live in is lonely, the Midnighters, why can't we live together, Timmy Thomas, the love we had stays on my mind, the Dells, be thankful for what you got, William Devon, the world is a ghetto, war, it's okay, the sun glows, to be loved, Jackie Wilson, the world is a ghetto. War. It's okay. The sun glows. To be loved. Jackie Wilson. It's okay. The sun glows. To be loved. Jackie Wilson. I reach for the dial and discover I can bend the moonlight by turning the dial on this old radio. Art LeBeau talks to a man who claims to be from Avenal, California. It's his little girl's, little girl's birthday and he's missed a few. He asks for the stylistics. You know the one. You're a big girl now. The producer tells Art, nobody's really from Avenal. The producer reminds Art, you know no one's really from Avenal. I reach for the dial and discover I can bend the moonlight into a glowing, smiling now, crying later crescent, just as easily by turning the dial on this old radio. I'm driving out near San Joaquin because I didn't know what else to do. A man tells Art LeBeau he's lived in Corcoran for 11 years, hasn't been out just as long. He requests a song by the Dramatics, the one about rain. So I can remember, the Corcoran man says. I reach for the dial and discover I can bend the moonlight so it enters the windows, of the, the windows of this car through the passenger side and onto my girl's face, and damn, she looks fine. We're on the 46, headed to Pismo, gonna make a fire and camp out there on the beach, real romantic-like. 
A man from Wasco tells Art he's been away so long, his old lady of eight years got a new dude up in the house, but he's not even tripping. The Wasco man requests the song Daddy's Home by Shep and the Limelights. The producer tells Art, Art, nobody's really from Wasco. The producer reminds Art, no one's really from Wasco, Art. Art, he says, you must have been a sled. Art, tell me, why do you insist on taking calls from these jokers? Art says, I reached for the dial long ago and discovered I could bend the moonlight by turning the dial on this old radio. In the proper frequency, the light reaches towns you and I have never seen, like Wasco, like Avenal, like Corcoran, others like Kern, like Chino, like Sentinella, like Chowchilla, towns where corporations profit from caged human beings. This light, this light jumps fences. It enters through the thickest of concrete walls. It opens locked iron doors, producer. The light hasn't need for windows. A good Catholic recalls the rule of intercession. I ask, what is a call but a prayer yet to be answered? The cage bird prays and art intercedes. I carry their plea. I awaken the memories cataloged in the vinyl ridges of each song. I am the needle under this master's hand. Um, he, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, the thing about Art LeBeau is, and, and I think what makes him, is gonna make him more of a, a lasting sort of cultural figure is that a lot of the guys, and, and men and women, who call in and, and make dedications, love dedications, um, are often locked up. And, um, and they'll call, and you can always tell by where they're calling from. Um, when they say places like, all the cities that I mentioned have state or federal prisons in them, or county prisons. Um, all throughout the Central Valley, um, there are almost like four to one um, prisons to universities. Um, and, uh, so places like Sentinella, Chowchilla, Chino, all these places are small towns of maybe like 10 to 20,000 people, but with a prison population of, you know, four to 5,000, you know. Um, and, the, and like in the case of a place like Mendota, which is right off the five freeway, um, just north of what would be Fresno, um, there's a, a federal women's prison right next to the high school football stadium. Um, and that's the case like all up and down central part of California, uh, where these, the largest building in the town is usually the prison. Um, and it's all farm, farm, rural farm territory. Uh, it's about 500, 500 miles north and south between Los Angeles and San Francisco of farm, farmland. Um, and that's where most of these, these prisons reside. Um, I'll finish with this one, and then we can, we can move on to the the interview, if, or um, this is actually the first thing you'll see in the book. It's the prologue. Um, uh, it begins with a, a line from William Blake: "I cared not for consequences, but wrote." Bless the fathers, bless the sons, bless the mothers of all sorts, bless the hornalero, the janitor, the framer, the plumber, the mechanic, the hustler, the sex workers, the thugs the jotitos, the mojaditos, the spicks, bless the brown and the black beans too. Bless my father, bless his sons, forgive his youngest son, Joseph Adam, for I know exactly what I do. First of all, I'm not scared of you motherfuckers. I don't care if you like what's written here. Yo, be real, son! Within each poem, I impersonate many people. Yo, be real, real, son! I channel them. Words are metaphors, Joseph. Signifier signified relationship? Don't you remember? Weren't you paying attention? 
Yes, every word is an impersonation of the signified, a metaphor, Aristotle, Borges, Eddie Murphy. That's what I'm doing here, among other things. This book, well, it's just an attempt to impersonate myself. What I write, I write for my best friends, my cousins, old coworkers, my dead father, and myself. Of my poems, most of you stuffy yellow bean wearing motherfuckers will probably say, just a bunch of cursing and hip-hoppy nonsense. Wrong. This young, unlearned man's first attempts at the poetically divine fall harder than Dante's bills above. Lame. And also wrong. It's juvenile, uninspired, undeveloped hodgepodge, messy, profane, and unoriginal. You see, that's what's wrong with the educational system today. These kids don't take the craft of writing seriously. Wrong. Joseph, I'd like to weigh in on this, if you don't mind. Of course. Reader, what the young man is getting at here is an important point. Unfortunately, the progressionist art form has left some people behind, families of people, neighborhoods, communities, street corners. With them, we leave some of the finest, spontaneous, organically developed manipulations, nay, evolutions of the language, this side of the 20th and, yes, 21st centuries. Mr. Rios impersonates their heavy referencing attention to sound, rhythm, cadence, word choice, simile, metaphor, etc., with the same plain speak he knows well. He is introducing the references his brothers, cousins, friends make all the time to describe the world around them. He's using that material they employ to qualify the human experience. He's taking that and introducing it to the rigid forms of poetry and seeing how they coalesce and how they most surely do not. Think Star Wars, Richard Pryor, Rocky, Freddie Fender, Bobby Womack, Gladys Knight, James Brown, Notorious B.I.G., Richie Valenzuela, Tower of Power, and my father in conversation with Gwendolyn Brooks, John Keats, Oscar Seta Costa, and Martina Spada. Think Woody Allen directing Blood In, Blood Out, Phil Levine singing the Isley Brothers, Dick Gregory dancing banda, Robert Haas running from La Migra. My father would have called it the funk. My older brother might have called it G-funk. Y'all don't even know what that is. Look it up in the dictionary. Then ask a 14-year-old in East Oakland what that means. They'll tell you. She'll be the one walking to school past the junkies, the dealers, the pimps. She's never read William Blake because the district defunded her school's library and added 10-foot iron fences around the perimeter of the campus. Yo, get used to that, son. That's how they treat us. Go to Fresno. Go to West Fresno. Fresno's West Side was the closest we ever got to the big time. Go to Parkside. Go to Kawa, Food Town, Beansville. Ask them about it. See, what, poor, what most poor dark people understand is this. When they're done taking all your shit, turning off the water, the cable, the lights. When they're done taking your car, your house, your dad, your older brother, your baby sister. The funk is all you got. It's a way of bobbing and weaving. It's a way of slipping the jab. They can't knock you out if you keep moving, even on the page. You don't understand. They're killing us off one by one. We're being systematically annihilated, destroyed, dismembered, eliminated, exterminated, deported, executed, incarcerated. I've been around, you know. I've seen this shit. I'm talking about boys, young boys, smaller than these, younger than these, hauled off in chains, gunned up, clapped quick, shanked up. They're all wet. Joseph, please explain. Explain what, man? I'm in my zone right now. Please explain what you meant by wet so they all understand. Damn, man, are you serious? First of all, if Nabokov decides to use French or Russian in his, Eng in his English work, we're all supposed to fall in line and either A, skip over what we don't know, or B, learn French and Russian. But a, but a second a brother like myself decides to use slang in Spanish or French or both, I gotta follow up and tell you what I really mean. Gotta hold a motherfucker's hand and shit. Look, when someone says, I'm gonna get you all wet, bro, that means they're gonna puncture your skin with a bullet or something sharp enough to spread your insides all over the pavement and get your clothing wet with your own blood. There, are you happy now? Is that clear enough? Can I continue? Yes, thank you. Where was I? Oh yeah, maybe this is a good time to explain the phrase, he go. This phrase defines by poetics, go is not a verb here, but rather an adjective in the progressive tense. It's like a person is in constant motion. He or she embodies forward motion. Can't stop, won't stop. While we're walking down the street with a homie of mine, a stranger commented on his pants. Hey, them pants too tight for you, partner. 
And then his boy said, nah, leave the brother alone. He go. And to this, the dude responded, nah, you got it wrong, player. He went. <laughs> this spontaneous manipulation of an manipulation is a sort of linguistic magic that happens on the street every day. People are inventing and adding to the language. Not only was my homie going, but he'd already been there. Whatever, I don't need your approval or your praise. If this racket doesn't work out, I can always go back to mowing lawns, working on cars, working on airplanes, etc. I'll be fine. I know my poetry go, my poetry went, it's done that, already been there, it's gone. You can't even find it. Shit, that's not even what's important here. You want to impress me? Get a Dream Act passed with no military option. Support literacy and literacy in every hood in Hamlet. Teach Hamlet in every hood. Get more healthy produce to Huntington Park. Fund libraries and good teachers. Stop banning books that make brown people proud of themselves. Support the third world college. Buy art, pay artists. Explain the historical significance of my father's curly hair. Cure the cancer in my grandfather's kidney, in my mother's breasts, in my tia's lungs and ovaries. Bring back my tia Cookie. Bring back Sissy and Michelle. Stop letting pesticides into the water. Stop deporting mothers. Stop incarcerating fathers and sons. Let girls be boys and boys be girls. And when all else fails, imitate Zapata and Shakespeare. P.S. If you don't like the phrase motherfucker, I suggest you put the book down and go get lost in Ikea. <laughs> I say fuck at least 100 times a day to keep my teeth white, and that's way less than David Mamet used in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and they gave that guy the Pulitzer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so I do a podcast, and I've never done a podcast live before, so I'm uh, kind of freaking out a little bit, but it'll be okay. It'll be all right. So what I'm going to do is just land a couple of ideas or ground a couple of ideas, and then we'll open it up to questions and try to get the interaction. And don't be, just because I'm recording, don't be self-conscious about just expressing yourself. Like, I, I do like ambient noise. I do like sounds, right? Like, one of the things about podcasts and submitting my podcast to largely white institutions is they... They get really angry that the sound is, isn't sterile. They get angry that there's background noise, that sometimes I record outside and I'm saying hi to somebody or whatever. <laughs> but that's just kind of how we roll, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. So uh, just try to keep that in mind. And then um, since we're not amplifying sound because the mics didn't work out, just let me know if you can't hear. I'll do my best to monitor that. And for some reason, zippers are really loud in, on the mic. I don't know why, so just be mindful of that. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's just like throbbing in my ear and it's driving me crazy. You want to bring it a little bit? Thanks, Jenks Joseph. Um, so I, th I think um, what I want to start talking about, and I'm, I'm trying to do this like I do my podcast, but then there's like people in front of me, so I'm, I'm trying yeah, to figure out how to manage that. It's also my first time doing a podcast. It's also your first time doing your podcast? Can you tilt towards me, actually? It is actually the first time I've done a podcast, and it's definitely the first time being interviewed in front of people. Oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> right. So we're doing yeah. all sorts of stuff. All right. I'll nice. do my best. I'll do my best. Uh. We'll, we'll both do <laughs> our best. That's good. Um, I, think, I think reading the book is incredibly emotional for me, man. Like, I was just like, oh, shit. Like, I was just crying all the time, and even listening to you now, it's kind of hard for me to maintain my composure, and I was just trying to figure out why that is. And I've been meditating a lot about... Um, you know, my working class identity and what's been difficult about becoming a writer. And I think, um, I think why I like the book so much is because when you, if you're a working class kid, especially working class uh, student of color, 
and you take sociology classes and humanities classes, what often happens is you get pathologized, right? Those classes are trying to explain to me why it is that I'm deficient, why my community is needing policing, why my parents needed to get deported even though they didn't. Um, these ideas that I'm not part of society and I should be invisible, that's always been the message from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then the, the representations that do exist of our heritage or our identity are often from middle class sources of people of color, often really leaning into respectability and sort of take some of the things that you describe but make them cliches. And that's why it's always been hard because I never felt, you know, I didn't have the language for it, but it always felt dishonest. Mm -hmm. And so what I really like about what you're doing is you're, you're coming at it from where we're, we come from as working class people, but there's an exploration and there's a honesty about it that just feels really nourishing because I've never had the opportunity to embrace that, feel that, and, and heal from the sort of daily degradations of being a working class person of color. Mm. You know? Thank you. So yeah, I think it's, and, th and also just that Art LeBeau thing, is that was, my, was probably one of my favorite pieces and to hear you read it is really powerful and also to immediately recognize as you were, as I was reading it that you were describing prisons and these are prisoners calling into a radio station and just, I've been writing a lot about prisons lately, I've been visiting jails really regularly and, and I spent some time in LA County Jail myself and so having experience and being very aware of the invisibility of the incarcerated population and you're centering it really clearly, where you're centering it in a way that if you don't know about prisons in California, you wouldn't recognize mm -hmm. the cities and what they mean. And so it's, it almost felt like you were talking to me specifically mm -hmm. and other people like me that have an experience of incarceration or a familiarity with California prisons. Mm -hmm. And so that was just, it was a very intimate moment for me as I was reading it and again, hearing you describe it. Yeah. Um no, that, that piece in particular, it, it came out of a, a workshop and um, uh, actually was with Juan Felipe Herrera and he said, and it was a week-long workshop in near Lake Tahoe and uh, Squaw Valley and um, he called it, a, he said, we're not going to call it Squaw Valley anymore, we're going to call it Woman Warrior Mountain. Um, and uh, he said, I said, you know, I don't know how I'm going to survive this week, you know, I've already, I've only written one day and I already feel exhausted. Like, you know, we're supposed to write five more poems this week, and, you know, and he's like, well, he's like, well, you know, this is what you got to do. He's like, you know, you just, uh, maybe, you know, you write for like 15 minutes, you know, you write for 15 minutes, and then like, you know, maybe take a, take a little break, take a little break, you know, and then, then you maybe write a list, you know, write a list of something, you know, maybe like, you know, write all the ways you could say blue, you know, say blue, 15 ways, you know. And, uh, and you then should write like a textbook. <laughs> you know, how, to, how to write poetry, you know, my homeboy. Yeah, <laughs> like by Juan Felipe, as told by Joseph Rios. Uh, <laughs> you know, a, and then a he's guy like, with, like yeah. images and photos and shit. That'd be amazing. And he's like, you know, like write, you know, write a playlist, write a playlist of songs. And when he said playlist, I was like, oh, I could do that. So like the next night, you know, we had to write uh, we, every day. We had to turn a poem for the next day to be workshopped, and mm. um, and I started with a, a playlist of songs. And I immediately gravitated towards Art LeBeau. And, um, uh, and then I started seeing, like, and just in the names of these, like, old school, like, doo-wop groups and, and R&B groups and singing groups, all-male singing groups, um, this kind of poetry in the, in the names, like, 
um, the sun glows, the, mm. the limelights, Shep and the limelights. It's like the, the aesthetic of the names of these groups. Yeah, and how they, and just actually like writing them out actually felt like there was like, there was something in there like poetically and even in the titles of the songs, uh -huh. you know, very like, you know, um, the world is a ghetto, um, you know, it's okay, it's okay to be loved, to be loved, it's okay to be loved, war, you know, it's like all these things in the repetition kind of things can be pulled out, you know, but you have to hear them, you know, um, things like the dramatics or I don't know, there's like all these, there's like bands like Manchild and, um, and crazy names and titles that, that kind of come out of it. And, um, mm. and I always, and I really think that like Art LeBeau occupies a space um, for those who are incarcerated, those are, who are like driving up and down the five in California and, and, and big diesel trucks. And like uh, it's, it's I mean, for the five freeway in California is basically all up and down the stem of the state. It's a lonely drive. Yeah, yeah. You're you doing can, it back you can and take forth. the five from San Diego all the way up to yeah. Portland, you know, Washington. You can take the five all the way up the West Coast uh, of, this, of the country. And um, uh, and the f you know, you were talking about like um, that sense that, you know, I was talking directly to you, you know, or or whatever. Um, on the five, you know, when you're going from Los Angeles to San Francisco, at least, um, Fresno is about 250 miles, 230 miles from Los Angeles, 200, 220 miles south of San Francisco. So it's literally in the middle of between the two uh, major cities. And, um, and it's nothing but farmland in between uh, all the way north and south. And when people take the five, um, all my, you know, friends that I know from LA, friends I know from San Francisco, they're like, oh yeah, I go by Fresno all the time. Like, uh, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but you're on the five, you know, and on the five, you're about 40 miles west of what, from Fresno itself. So when they go by and they see the, the little arrow that says Fresno to the right, it's really another 30, 40 minute drive mm -hmm. inland. Right. But they're like, yeah, I, that's just all farm. I was like, yeah, it's all farm, but you know, you just blow by at 90 miles an hour on the five. And, um, and as far as the poetry goes, like that, that sense of being, that sense of being disregarded and the knowledge of you being from a place that is often disregarded mm -hmm. and the place where they hide all these prisons and the place where they, where we, you know, you, you know, overutilize this immigrant labor to, to like generate our food for the, not only the U.S., but the rest of the world. Um, that if you, when you're creating something there, there's a freedom in, in thinking or understanding that you, you you might just create this in obscurity, you know, or like that you're going to be disregarded. So you're just kind of allowed to, to make it how you want it without anybody, presumably that mm. before, without anyone seeing it or hearing it, you know, so you kind of get to mm. play around and, you know, you know, fuck you, motherfuckers. Like yeah. when, they, when they drive by on the five, you know, <laughs> everybody going up and down. I don't know um, the reference point, yeah. So, hmm. yeah, so like it, it, was, it was very, I felt very comfortable just kind of um, expressing myself however I felt like because it was like, you know, it's not LA, it's not the Bay, it's not New York, it's not Chicago. Like we're out here in the middle. I like to say the middle of everywhere, but, um, but yeah, the middle of nowhere, you know. Um, yeah, and despite these perceptions of wealth that California has, like coast, whatever, that's just not what's going on in the Central Valley and Merced and Fresno. Yeah. And, and it's so huge, yeah. you know, it's so huge. I mean, you to drive from, it takes six hours to drive from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And like I said, it's 500 miles of just farmland. 
Yeah, and if you end up stopping in Fresno, you're like, or not, I guess not Fresno, but the yeah. off ramp, you're like, fuck, you fucked up somehow because you forgot to get gas earlier, or you're hungry, or somebody just took a dump, like something like that. <laughs> so it's yeah. not, it's not really a choice. You're just like, oh, yeah. fuck, this is where I end up. Yeah, I've had friends like who I know, like they, they'll, they've called me in the middle of the night, even though they know I live in LA or I live in, in or was living in the Bay for about five years. Um, before that, they'll call me like in any if the car breaks down in any of that <laughs> any of that 500 mile stretch in between they're like hey man i think i'm in fresno like <laughs> you got you know anyone who could pick me up and i'm like i'm like laying in bed like where are you and they're like i'm in kettleman city i'm like dude you're 90 miles from where i live and i'm like you know like you know or oh you're and like i remember well one time i had a friend who was like really like stuck and like had no one and she was actually in Kettleman City, and uh, she she was a student at UCR, UC Riverside, and she would drive back to visit her family back in the Bay Area. That's a lot of driving. Yeah, it was that's a lot of driving. Because Riverside is like two well, hours miles? in. Yeah, two hours east of, of Los, Los Angeles. Angeles, so that's two hours in, in and then through LA. Yeah. And then. So <laughs> we didn't we didn't plan that. It's just yeah. California <laughs> shit. That's how I spatially understand yeah, like, it. Oh, por allá, más left. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and I had AAA thankfully, so I was, and I had 120 miles of free tow. So, and she was like 95 miles from my mom's house, and so they mm -hmm. towed her all the way to my mom's house. And then, well, they towed her to my cousin's, my cousin's auto mechanic shop, which is like three blocks from my mom's house. Um, and it was like three in the morning or something like that, and that was that was pretty cool. That's like my biggest fear ever. To California. <laughs> biggest fear. Yeah. No man. That's the one plus is like so many of my cousins like do, I have a cousin that does everything, you know, like there's always like a cousin that does plumbing, a cousin that does, is a mechanic, the cousin that. I mean, is he good at it though? Because there's, no, there's always that cousin the, too. No, the, the thing about this mechanic in particular yeah. is I don't go to him because he's, I know he's really good, which also means he's very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> he's too bougie for you. Yeah, no, so I'm like, and he doesn't, because there's so many, so much family in the neighborhood, so he doesn't give us all like family discount because otherwise. <laughs> he, of business. he would go out of business, you know, like. Uh, so, but I, I like if I'll usually go to like the guy who does it in his driveway first, and then if he can't figure it out, then I gotta call my, you know, my cousin Andy. My my dad sold vitamins, so he has this like encyclopedic <laughs> understanding of like vitamin C. So if you're like, oh, my thing hurts, he'd be like, oh, take this, this, that, or he would have said that. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was he was the homeboy. My dad wasn't a homeboy. He was very Mexican. He's very immigrant. But um, <laughs> if I, I totally understand what you mean. By yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I 100% understand but what I mean. He was, we were like in flea markets growing up on the weekends in San Fernando Valley. Like he was Buying selling drugs. vitamins. <laughs> no, so he was. I don't know. Peddling pills. I don't even know why I'm talking about this, but he, uh, he would sell vitamins to poor people. That's a hustler. Yeah. You know? And when my so my friends would visit me and they would notice a suburban, a black suburban would show up in our driveway. And so for years, all my friends who were also who ended up being gangbangers and all these different things, uh, you know, running from the law, prisoners, different things, they always thought my dad was a drug dealer. Which and my he, dad was just like, <laughs> which he was sort of, but yeah. like, he's like, you he know, by that at that point he was like late sixties, like five five little Mexican guy, and they thought he was this like thugged out drug dealer. And I was like, yeah. what the fuck? Like it took ten years for them that, to finally like admit that they had this perception of my yeah, dad. Yeah, he also like sold Herbalife. Yeah. And he's like cutting off balas once a week. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, we just assume everyone's a drug dealer, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I don't know where I went with that, but whatever. <laughs>
Uh, I think, I mean, we talked about this earlier. So, uh, so Joseph was, uh, he was at a course earlier, uh, Professor Patino is also here, um, just kind of did a reading and we had a good conversation. And I think one of the, one of the really good tones that came out of that, and then we'll go to questions. Um, one of the good tones that came out of that is the idea of like masculinity and, and sort of how that shows up in the book. And the more I heard you talking about it, the more I, the more I was hearing this idea that that the book is sort of also like this journey through masculinity and within working class communities and yeah. sort of the traps that one finds themselves in trying to navigate that and just like, I mean, I also think about my dad just giving constant like double standards and mixed messages about appropriate behavior, right? Like when I was 16, my dad gives me a pile of condoms and he's like, you know, just don't get any, in Spanish, right? Don't get anybody pregnant. And I'm like, uh, I'm not even having sex, dad. Like, talk. What, what <laughs> Good talk, dad. And he's like, don't lie to me. I know you're banging everybody. Just don't have a kid. And I'm like, all right, whatever, dad. And then to my sister, obviously, it's like, oh, if you even look at a guy, you're a slut, you know, like yeah. all that kind of shit. And just trying to figure out what is the message I need to be carrying as I become my own man, but then also like trying to also immediately figure out what is the bad thing that I'm hearing or what is the thing that's going to be problematic for me or, or where it is that I start finding my values and what that mm -hmm. navigation, just how complicated that navigation is. But, it, you know, I think that came out in the earlier conversation. Yeah, you know, um, the way I was trying to describe it to them, actually using um, David's cover, um, his image here, um, the way... I think of like Josefo's journey um, is not unlike this particular image where he is um, he's in the ring and that he encounters all of these like older male mentors who are constantly trying to rear him along a path they believe to be the right one. Um, but it's like in the case of any trainer boxer relationship, like the trainer is supposedly the one who has all the, the knowledge and all the experience, but in the end has to get out of the ring when the bell sounds, you know, and, um, and Josefo encounters all these different older male figures who are always trying to set him straight or tell him how it is or um, this is how you need to be. And, and for a lot of it, I, you know, I deliberately keep him silent just because um, I want, like, I, I want a reader to see, like, the, you know, how, how, how harsh and real some of these um, sort of teachings and lectures can be um, and how it's like um, these wrong ways that, that, that boys can be led along to believe they need to act and how, um, how hard they can be um, to carry those, you know, and then to uh, dismember them for yourself as you get older, if you, if you even decide to do so. Um, and. Uh, I feel like for Josefo, it's like um, these 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 like older these older men, his father, guys that work with him, like um, like at shops or in the packing house or whatever. Always, even Chewy, you know, who was uh, I read the dialogue with Chewy, you know, um, they they seem to be very curious about what he's about, but uh, wanting to like let him know how they how they act and how and let him. Um, uh, again, like rear him along this path that they believe to be the right one, but oftentimes it's very toxic. Uh, it's very harmful to him and to people he cares about. And uh, and it's the journey of the book for me is like him, sort of trying to 
uh, get to, a, if at all, arrive at a point where he, um, you kind of get a sense of what kind of choices he's going to make, um, even though he hasn't really explicitly um, said much. You right. know. Um, yeah, that's appreciated because it's not you're not trying to like soapbox or like apologize for past behavior. You're just in the book. Yeah. You're just sort of like laying it out and all right, like this is what happened. This, these are the things that I'm trying to navigate. Yeah. Like when I was when I was listening to you earlier today, I was thinking about like my my dad's last great stand of masculinity when I was like in my twenties. Like he had gotten really mad for some reason at me, and and uh, we were outside in the in the in the garage area, and he he was just um, he was a senior citizen most of my my life together. He was an older guy, and we're just standing there, and he's angry, and he's like putting up his fists, and he's just like wrenching mad, and his dentures fall out. Right, like I'm just like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, I'm a hundred pounds heavier than you. You're five five. Like, what what is this performance? You know, why are yeah. you so threatened by whatever it is that I'm doing? Like, yeah. But you know, it's just he was trying to hold on to something. Yeah, right? some semblance yeah. of of his, of his like perception of masculinity that just wasn't. Yeah, I just wasn't that, driving with. Yeah, that stuff is. It's heavy. Oh, there was a student at the end who came up and we, he was asking me uh, about that, and I was just saying, you know, that. It's it's just so heavy to carry that to carry that shit your whole life and and try to put up this this front that you're some kind of man or whatever that looks like. I mean, it really. I mean, along with hurting those people that care about you, I mean, you're hurting yourself constantly when it would just be so easy to just so much easier and and freeing to just feel the feelings that you're feeling and let them out, you know, and. Um, and 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 not be seen as something that's soft or weak, you know, that weakness is is walking around like that all day, like, you know, a, a like a, a small percentage of a full human being, you know, um, yeah, it's very very heavy, heavy, heavy to carry that all the time, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know, I, it's it's been a long road to try to let those things down, put them down, and keep going put them down keep going mm -hmm. and um, but you know some of the best some of the best and most um, fruitful work you know um, personally anyway outside of the, the book well and then the tension of like you know at times needing to draw from that to protect oneself or like the people that you care about and, and just how to just not feel corrupted by those moments either mm -hmm. right like I don't know it's hard not not to say that like you know woe is us, but like you know, there's, there's some realness there, right? We have yeah. to think, sort of think about it in the process. No, I just feel like if as as I keep going with it, it's not even like it's like well, it's just a very simple like, do you want to keep hurting the people around you or not? And if you say no, then you have to do a lot of work hmm. to like get rid of all this, shed all this bullshit, and then until you can just. Forgive yourself, forgive people who taught you that stuff, and and just enjoy the people that you have now as best as you can, you know. Otherwise, that shit will get in the way really quick, you know. It rots quickly. Yeah. yeah. All right, questions. What do we got out here? What's going on? Any thoughts, ideas, comments? It's all right. It's okay. kids. Oh. Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to, first of all, welcome, <laughs> uh, hi, <laughs> um, you want to say your name? 
Roy. My name's Roy Guzman. And um, how long did it take you to write this book? And that, at which point did you realize that it needed to be what it became? Hmm. Um, Hold on, no, no, no. back, dog. <laughs> logistical complication we find ourselves in. Wow. Well, um, okay. <laughs> trying to do the NPR thing here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, you could be a Terry Gross. Man. Yeah. <laughs> man. Uh, I want to be Chicano Charlie Rose, man. Okay. All right. Um, uh, I never said that. <laughs> Carlos. Carlos Rose. Rosa. Carlos, Carlos, Carlos Rosas. Rosa. Yeah, Carlos Rosas. You get a fat tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that. Let's go. Yeah. I, I started, I think the first time I submitted something that I thought was a manuscript, and I, I say that like pretty deliberately, like I just had a bunch of poems and... Um, was probably around like 2009, um, but I would say it wasn't until probably like 2012 that I had, I took, I took a uh, <coughs> workshop with Willie and Vona, um, uh, Voices of Our Nations, a summer workshop. It was a manuscript building class, and I had submitted, I had like 60-ish, 70 pages of poems that I thought was a working manuscript, but um, I was pretty far. I was like far away from what this is now and um, um, <coughs> Willie really uh, Willie also you know wrote a very generous foreword for this book um, and he uh, he at the end of that workshop he asked me some really like pointed questions about the work um, I was already starting to sorry. write sorry it's getting loud sorry yeah I was I was uh, already starting to write about Josefo instead of, I had stepped away from writing about the I. Um, I had moved from the first person and been like, and um, moved over to writing Josefo does this, Josefo does that. And that little bit of distance between me and, and Josefo really gave me a lot of space to, to just say whatever. Because then it, in, in some really weird, small way, it was like, it's still not me. But it, and everything, even though everything is me, it's just, oh, this is Josefo, Josefo, Josefo. And it was outside of myself. And that, that I, in the first person, was very intimidating. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you talked about that earlier today, too. It, it, also, it almost sounded like you shifted away from being, like, self-absorbed to being more introspective. Like, that allowed you to be more introspective and, like, yeah. have this critical distance. Yeah, and I, I was able to, like, really analyze this Josefo character. It, Josefo is the, my, a nickname my grandfather gave me when I was little, and he, was, he still calls me that. And um, he's only was the only person to, to use that name until I went away to school at Berkeley and some of my other peers, um, other, you know, Chicano students started just randomly calling me Josefo. And um, and as foreign and alienated as I felt in that space, hearing that name again really brought me back to being a little boy and, and, and brought me back into that affection of my grandfather. and. Um, uh, so when I was drafting those poems, I was like, this name, Josefo, really had something meant a lot to me. So I was like, well, let me see if I can just start writing about this Josefo from the perspective of Josefo, this boy from, from the valley, but also this boy who's at Cal now, you know, um, and is encountering all this, this new knowledge from the ivory tower and, and being terrified and scared of this place and feeling alienated. And, um, and Willie really helped me kind of focus in on, on Josefo, and he asked all these really pointed questions about him that weren't being answered at that point by the, by the poems. And um, 
And it took me about another three years to answer those questions with the work. Um, every time I would see Willie, he would come back to Berkeley for Vona. And I, I didn't go back to Vona because I, I was kind of joking, but kind of serious. I was like, I'm still doing the homework from last time. You know, and uh, he'd be like, ah, you know, he would laugh at me and say, man, it's not that serious. And I was like, <laughs> maybe it is, you know, but, um, and it took about three years to, I went to Anderson Center and Richard was actually at the Anderson Center with me and, and, um, and um, Red Wing. And it was there that I really like hammered down um, the last bit of that, that homework and sent off, sent off the book to, to Omni Don, um, my, last, my last day there. And, um, and yeah, I would say, um, I, I feel like I, I what, what Willie did was, I feel like he saw like that this is where I was headed. The book was like right here. And, and it took the three years to get the work to get to that point where he, he wanted, he knew I could get to. And it wasn't until I got there that I was like, all right, this is, this is, this is almost there, you know? Um, yeah. Cool. Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Yeah, David. Yeah. Um, <coughs> hold on, hold on. We gotta. Yeah, I gotta deal with this. All right, right. Here we go. David, um, uh, it was an honor letting you use the image for the book. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. So it's nice to meet you. Um, I love the part, the radio. The, that, that whole notion there is so poignant, the uh, broadcast and the nature of that reminded me when I was a boy living in a very small town in Montana late at night was an AM radio pulling things in that were extremely foreign to me and trying to make sense of it. But uh, the usefulness of a program like that, like you say, um, you know, the people calling in and those songs have been played so many times, but it, it's, it's new and it's needed when it's played that night. Anyway, I thought that was just a beautiful passage, that idea. Broadcast out and you know broadcast back too, and then I'm always interested in uh, kind of tagging off of what this guy did. Just uh, writers and uh, artists, you know, just a little bit more about their working methods. Like, mm. you know, it's great. I don't know, just I, just like nuts and bolts. Like, how often do you write? Do you write every day? Are you working on a number of things? Um, do you focus specifically when you're going into a book or? Um, does a thing kind of come to you? Oh, shut up. That's enough, right? <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> I didn't say anything, but, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. self-censorship was good. Man. I, I didn't want to make sure you had a question. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, with all this book stuff, I, I haven't been writing as much as I was before, you know. Um, it's just a lot of administrative work, like emailing people, and it's really like planning things and setting up stuff. It's kind of been a drag, and I was actually, the last time I saw Willie, um, I was at uh, Canto Mundo, it's a, a writing fellowship um, out in, um, it was in New York this past July, and the last year and a half, I was editing the book with, with my editor, uh, Gillian, and she, uh, so that was consuming a lot of my like creative energy. I, I, I had to, I've had to like really lean on like other poet friends um, that are in LA to kind of like just for us to like meet up together, you know, write together in order to make any kind of headway. I'm like nowhere near like anything that looks like a second collection. I remember I kind of naively thought like when they, they told me that the book was gonna come out in a year and a half, I was like, dang, I gotta, I gotta write the second one now, you know? 
I'm going to have a second album ready to go. Sophomore <laughs> album release. That's the big one. Yeah. Sophomore one. Yeah. Um, but it didn't happen that way, you know, at all. And, um, and then when I saw Willie last, I said, man, I'm like, I'm really bummed because, like, you know, I'm thinking I haven't been able to write as much. I've been so consumed with all this book-related stuff. Um, you know, what, what do I do, you know? I mean, um, and he, he told me, like, because uh, up to that point before, I mean, I was, like, you know, writing and reading and being, like, in my mental space. Like, for me, the big thing, like, in relation to my own, like, work that pays the bills I've like tried to I've tried to stay in the mental space of writing and creating as much as possible without giving away like my energy to work you know so like that's why doing a lot of manual labor jobs is so has been so good for me because I can always say like you can have this and but you can't have this you know hmm. and like that's even while I'm like underneath your sink fixing your you know fixing your pipes I can still be over here, you know, uh, and you, but you can't have that. You're not paying enough for that, you know? Mm. Um, and, uh, so what Willie said to me was that he was like, bro, he's like, you gotta chill, man. Like you just like, he's like, how long did it take you to, to like get to this point? He's like, I met you in 2015. You were already for long. He's like, how further back were you writing this thing? I said, you know, as early as 2008, 2009, he was like, well, that's like seven, eight years. He's like, it might be that long again. Hmm. Like, just straight up. Like, he's like, it might be that long again between now and the next one. He's like, he's like, uh, you have to be ready for that. And he's like, and you know what? Just enjoy the shit out of this book that you have. Um, and he's like, because that won't last forever either. He's like, you know, and, um, um, and the writing will come when it comes, you know. And I, you know, I try to trying really hard to just like sit in that and, and, and have faith that it's gonna be that way. But um, you know, we live in a very producer driven society where we're, if we're not making, we feel useless, you know? Mm. And, um, and I'm trying to fight that, fight that very much, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think um, when I think about writing and when I think about my writing, it's, it's, um, it's coming to terms with the fact that it's a really painful process like to find the right words to like just find whatever is in myself that needs to be out that needs to be um out into the world that needs to speak like whatever heard or just idea and it, it's really hard to get there i find mm -hmm. and and also it's really hard it's it'd be you know it's been really important for me to think about how to come out of that and just like live my life and live the rest of my day or whatever yeah. so try, try to like structurally create an environment where i'm in that pain i'm in that in that tension but then also back out, being a good friend of people, yeah. being, being a good community member or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, it's just really hard I find, but it's, it's enriching and rewarding and nourishing, but yeah. just the process itself is difficult. Yeah, it's hard. I would say uh, one, of the, one of the perks of doing all this like work in the book and, and analyzing all this stuff is I think that I'm hopefully a better person than I was when I started, you know? Um, even though there's all this like heinous ass trash ass behavior in the book I, I kind of feel really far from it now uh, <laughs> um, and uh, all that all that trife life stuff in there that's was real for a long time you know I, I feel very distanced from it and maybe that's why I was able to to write about it you know and no time away from it yeah uh, and um, yeah. so um, yeah maybe that's that's what I'll have to 
maybe eight years from now I'll be having I'll be writing about this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I get to be encouraging the book. Yeah. Carlos Carlos Rosas. Yeah, it's good. I like that. I have a new pen name. I used to have a. I used to, when I was in Guatemala. I was I was um, uh, I was spending a lot of time with this community called Nueva Linda, and they were massacred by the government. I wasn't there the day of the massacre, but I was there for a long time with them before, and then. Uh, the days after, and I used the pen name because the foundation that funded me would have cut my funding if they'd found out I was doing that. Mm-hmm. So my pen name was Relampago Sanchez. Say more time. Relampago, Relampago Sanchez. Relampago. So it's like the <laughs> it's like the Chicano equivalent of Indiana Jones. It means like Lightning Sanchez. Yeah. <laughs> Relampago Sanchez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Relampago Sanchez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dances a lot. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, in Guatemala, like. Um, uh, indigenous, the indigenous languages are, are sung to one another, and so the Spanish is like really lyrical and like dances a lot. And I, mm-hmm. I picked up a lot of that when I was down there. Yeah. Lampago. Lampago. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts, questions? Anything percolating? It's a very self conscious group. I'm surprised. What's up, brother? What's your name? My name's Michael. Michael. Hey, Michael. How's it going? It's going well. All right, brother. I'm glad I'm here. Nice. Um, you from L.A.? I see a king's hand on your head. I'm from Pomona. Uh, Pomona? I went to Pitzer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Pomona. It's Claremont. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. right there. Neighbor. Yeah, my taco spot was like on... Um, <coughs> I can't remember. Off Indian Hill? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. (laughs) You know about the 50 cent margaritas? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I was there when they started that, the day they started that. (laughs) That was a very long day. He started. He got it. I like our 50 cents, dog. That's how it started, yeah. This is a podcast. I can do whatever I want. This is amazing. Actually, I don't know how well this question is going to go because I've always thought to ask it to some reader or writer, but. We'll figure it out together. All right. Don't worry about it. I guess I want to ask um, what other work or who, whose work do you imagine or you, do you want your debut collection to be in conversation with? Hmm. That's pretty clear. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, okay. I like that. Yeah, right. that's, a, that's a nice question. That's a new one. Um, yeah. All right. Um, what do you think about that question? That's a good question. Yeah, right? <laughs> Solid. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, you, hold, you hold on to that one. That just, you know, when other instances, bring that one up again. Yeah, That's a yeah, good yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in a note card. You like yank it out of your wallet. Like, yeah. I just got a question. I just thought about it. You know. <laughs> it's good. Um, actually, you know, I, I uh, it's kind of more like a, like a hashtag goals than actual truth. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, actually, Sean's mentor, um, Douglas Kearney, uh, is someone who like stylistically like is like so far outreaching. I mean, I feel like at certain instances I, you know, want to get to that point and like, and especially when it, in realms of like. Can you describe his work a little bit? Uh, Sean probably did it better than any, me. Any <laughs> Sean, Sean, do you want to come here and describe it a little bit? Just to give a flavor of what, what we're talking about? <laughs> Sean, uh, Sean's rubbing his eyes. Yeah, give me, give me some, brother. Like, well, I, gotta, I guess I'll say I need a, a, I need a, that I, that I, that I necessarily like particularly. Otherwise, it's too abstract in, in the yeah. podcast world. And no, um, I mean his the stuff he does rhythmically and does like performatively, and when you actually see him read, and the, the things he does with sound, the things he does with rhythm, things he does with cadence, things he does with um, that that actually come through just as I mean this is 
you know, I mean, you see him live, he's incredibly a incredible performer. So if I were to YouTube Douglas Kearney, what, what would be the thing to start with? Or oh, um, give, me, give me some anything, navigation. You know? Anything, man. Like, honestly, because it's like, you know, he, he, he inhabits like these voices just like, um, and, and will just like, it's just full frontal, man. Like, and, and the way that it happens on the page, the way that the text appears on the page is really, he, you know, he plays a lot. And, um, but I feel like the, the sound and everything like that comes through so strong when you read it, like, you know, and, and I feel like with this text, when I think about impersonations as, as part of the title, I think of like, pushing the bounds of what text can do to guide you into like how, how this something should be read, how it should sound, um, and like how you can know someone uh, without having like, like in the case of like a Chewy, you know, if you read that, it's very sparse, very, you know, very small piece of text, but hopefully like if you know a Chewy and you read that, you're going to hear him in your ear, even though you're just reading it. And um, the ability for, for every time I'm, I'm attracted to other writers who can generate that sort of energy and sound from a, from a mute page, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and Douglas Kearney is one of those who like, is like, for me, like as high as you can get as far as being able to accomplish that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, he's Yoda and like, <laughs> and I'm like, ba like little Anakin, you know, like, like I'm a youngling to like the nth degree, you know. Um, but he's definitely Yoda in that just regard. Messing around with CB3PO in the back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I, I would totally just be C3PO to his Yoda. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, like you know, he was always fixing the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Let it go, Peter. Let it go. <laughs> we could talk Star Wars for hours, dude. <laughs> he really could. Oh. That'd be that'd be a funny podcast, the Chicano Star Wars podcast, or just poets on Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would listen to that shit so I mean, hard. <laughs> <laughs> and Endor was uh, based on Tikal in Guatemala. George Lucas oh. was obsessed with Guatemala, and he would have been there during the armed conflicts. I don't know how. I'm curious about the logistics of what happened there. Yeah, um, the, but, but going back to the last point, sorry. But I oh, yeah. want to go there. I don't know. Sorry. No, that's fine. I don't know. We can yeah. talk again. We can talk stars when you want. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one one person I would say mm. um, that has been instructional just in in reading him. You know, um, yeah, definitely. So is that is that where sort of the the sort of because um, I'm fascinated with just the construction of the book and like the yeah. sort of the, the aesthetic of the of the tapestry and the way in which you just I don't know construct or present your your ideas. Right, there's just yeah. this really irregular, and there's pieces here and pieces there, and even in your presentation, right, like you get into the voice and the, the, and the sort of inner monologue and yeah. the, the code switching that happens and all these different things. Yeah, you know, like in, in the, the prologue, it's, it's, it's still, again, that same, like, these are, there's Josefo talking and his, his trainers, this, like, very academic-driven trainer, and then this, like, sort of, you know, father-ish, kind of, like, hood-ish knowledge character that's trying to interject you know and and coach him along the way along this kind of like manifesto that he's laying out in the beginning and um uh, i would say like you know any kind of like playing around that happens i i, I felt like i was always i always found it somewhere else first like i saw <laughs> another poet do it mm. from 
any century. I'm not, you know, as far back as like, you know, 17th century into now. Like uh, there was something I read in a class or in the library that I wanted to like structurally, visually on the page that was happening. I would, I would get turned on by it and try to f and bring it, um, which is why I think the, the dialogue and the, and the theater element was, was so important for me because um, just reading tons of plays, you know, and, and thinking about poetry and it's, you know, um, at that same workshop uh, that I was with Juan Felipe, Sharon Olds was talking about um, how the origins of poetry as an oral form and, and how our first stories were oral and that it wasn't until much, much later that poetry becomes something on the page and that there's a delineation between the theater, what's the theater and what's, a, uh, and what's poetry um, and how they were always uh, one thing, you know. And um, so kind of being able to take what, what uh, Doug was doing, you know, as very theatrical, you know, and, and like poetry being, a, being the source material for all of that, you know, and that the, the limitations of poetry and, and being able to like define it and saying like, this is poetry, this is theater is kind of um, unrealistic, you know, and that you're, you're limiting poetry in a way that, that doesn't, um, doesn't reflect its nature, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely a special experience to just hear you read your own work and just sort of, you know, I certainly had a, an imagined voice of what you were and just sort of experiencing um, just your presentation and, and, the, and there's sort of the necessary theatricality is really nice and certainly is going to change the way I read it because I, I found myself reading it again just in preparation for this podcast and just sort of, yeah, just wrapping with it, feeling it, feeling the emotions and embracing those emotions as they come. Yeah. 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 I do these weird pauses when I podcast, and I forget that I'm pausing, and I think about something else, and then I remember what I'm, what I'm doing, and I'm like, oh, I should probably edit that out. You did turn off the stove. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oh, shit, where's my cat? Oh God, what? Um, you know, so the the Dodgers are playing in the World Series against Houston, and we call it the Serie de Aslan, because you know, Aslan, obviously, and. Um, you know, my father was a, my father loved the Dodgers. You know, growing up in LA in the 80s, like you couldn't not love the Dodgers being Mexican because of Fernando Valenzuela and all these different yeah. things. And um, it's just really emotional because my dad passed away and I'm thinking about him a lot. And I think just listening to, you know, listening yeah. to you talk about it, reading your book, there's a lot of like father-son dynamics there. Yeah, and like yeah, the, yeah. The, there's a tension and joy and the emotion of it. And I remember you were, so that's just the thing, just saying that out loud, but, um, Something that came up earlier that I really enjoyed is, is uh, this idea of storytelling, right? Because yeah. in a lot of ways, the, the reason why I started doing El Guateque was to tell stories, right? And tell stories about the Latino community um, as I relate to it and as it exists. And a lot of that comes from my father, listening to my father and, and his immigrant buddies. And they would you know, hang out on Saturdays and drink a lot of tequila and like, sing Norteñas. And his homie would come out with an accordion at around 11 o'clock after like five mm -hmm. shots. And, it was really incredible, and it, it began my fascination with like storytelling, uh, regional Mexican music, northern Mexican music, where my yeah, dad's definitely. from. And uh, I remember you, you talked about your grandma sort of being mm -hmm. that storyteller and that sort of direction for you. Can you just talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah, I mean, what I was talking about in the class was that my grandmother was the sort of storyteller in the family. Um, I lived with my grandmother, my grandfather, my mom, and my, my mom's older sister. The five of us lived in the house. and. Um, and during the summertime when I was home 
home alone with my grandmother um, and my grandfather would be off doing whatever and, um, and my mom would be at work and my aunt would be um, in a room usually watching TV. My grandma would sit at the table and deal out cards and, and she would just, while she was doing laundry or making lunch or whatever, and, um, and she would just tell these stories that, about our neighborhood, about my grandfather, about her family, about everybody. And, and they kind of flowed out of her, you know, one after another. Sometimes they would start in the middle of a story, sometimes whatever. And I would just sit there on the other side of the table and across the plastic mantel, you know. And, oh, yeah, um, yeah. and everyone had those. Everyone had what those. was that about? Why were there always plastic mantel? I don't know. You're always trying to protect your your shit. The one, and thing, then, the one thing you got, you got to protect like, it. Yeah. But, like you, but then you have it for 10 years and you realize you never even enjoyed it because it was covered in plastic. Yeah. Uh, and the plastic made it up. <laughs> yeah. And it's like weird sound. But at least like, it's like not stained. The aesthetic yeah. of it was really yeah. nauseating. Um, but yeah, my grandmother and then these other older Mexican ladies would come into the back through the back door, and she would entertain them throughout the day, you know, and and um, and they would come in, they would tell gossip. My grandma would, then they would leave. Another lady would come in. My grandma would tell them the new shit, and then um, sometimes it would it would change. Sometimes she would make, exaggerate something I just heard, and I'm like, I want to call bullshit. I'm like, yeah, hey, grandma, that's not what she said. Mira, mira, mira. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. that's the yeah, American, yeah. that's the Americanized part. Like, that's the respectable part, looking for accuracy. Like, yeah, well, objectively, that's and I not get, what and you I said. got that unfortunately right. from my like, grandpa because like if he's ever at the table, he'd be like, you know, that's not how it happened, then. Like you know, like <laughs> and, you know, he was like, you weren't even there, you weren't even there, you know. Um, but she would, and like I realized that when she would do that, like you know, I would remember this. I started memorizing stories from her, you know. And even though when she would tell them over and over again, I would still listen to them. And, and I realized that she had them memorized a certain way. And that after, and after all the tellings and retellings that she understood and had made sort of choices stylistically, creatively, craft-wise, like when, what to emphasize, uh, when to lean in, when to throw her hands up, when to be like, did you remember what I said? Like, you know, did you know what she did? Like you'll never believe it. She did blah blah blah, and then and I'm like, and then the leather lace would be like, I know, so like you know, <laughs> and then I'd be sitting there, and and it's just, I I realize you know now much much later that you know those were like my first like performative workshops, you know, like where I learned how the like how stories could be carried on, performed, voices, inflections, all that rhythm, cadence stuff. Like my grandma was doing it over and over again every single day uh, there in the kitchen, you know, and um, and then it wasn't until much even later that I realized like how how um, vital and essential those stories are become once she's gone, you know, yeah, and that like my other cousins don't know those stories, you yeah. know, and so when it comes down to like in the case of like her even something like her eulogy or writing her writing her obituary, you know, it's like now the poet of the family becomes this vital role, you know, you know, and even though everyone's always like, you know, oh, yeah, when are you going to get a job, Joe? Like, you know, but then when we realize how I'm at these most important moments, when you literally, literally, quite literally have to speak for the dead, how important the poet in the family becomes, you know? Well, yeah, it's, it's speaking for the dead and then also offering an opportunity to connect to our heritage too, right? Right. And retell the stories right. for the whole family in a way that they can be refreshed and be like, 
that's us, you know. Um, like he's talking about us. Like he's talking about grandma, but he's talking about all of us. Um, and um, so, yeah, she was, she was definitely that, that person for, for, uh, for all of us. And I, I kind of feel it in a very like proud way that like I have, to, I, I have to occupy that role for the family as the keeper of the stories, you know. Um, and then I'm looking at like my cousin's kids and being like, all right, which one of you is the poet in here, motherfucker? Like, you know, like, just try to scan the room, like, which one of you is gonna <laughs> care enough to, to take all these stories from us, you know, of our of our family, and um, and keep them, you know, um, yeah, because it's so easily like passes from one to the next, you know. Um, yeah, and I've been thinking about that a lot with my my sister's daughter. She's what almost two now, and she's my siblings aren't as attached to speaking Spanish as I am, and they also just weren't as um, willing to listen to both my parents before they passed away and just find those stories and hold those stories. So I also feel a degree of pressure to like make sure that I'm spending enough time with her where she's, I'm not trying to tell her what to do, but just receiving our family history and our heritage and, and yeah. where we come from. You know, that, it's a unique sort of pressure that feels really good, but there's also, there's also pressure. There's also, yeah. there's a, there's an intensity there because you know that everything else in and what she's going to experience, everything else is going to try to strip away her connection to her heritage. Right, right. And there's there's a fight there. There's, there's a really that. important fight there that I want to be a part of and I'm excited to be a part of. Yeah. How much time do you got, Sean? What are you thinking? Okay. All right, just keep wrapping. Uh, let's just do like two more questions and then start wrapping it up. How's that sound, everybody? All right. What else we got? Questions. Let's go. I'll be brief. <laughs> I want to like intensely describe everyone in the room, but that's going to take too long because you know it's a podcast. You, there's no photos, right? It's just us sitting here. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on. Just, my <laughs> arm's tired. The one th tricky thing about podcasting, your arm gets tired. I feel like I just pitched a whole game. It's crazy. <laughs> You, you had mentioned... What's your name, young, young man? Uh, my name is Emmanuel. Uh, you had mentioned Willie Perdomo. Yeah. Um, he, I had actually, thanks in part to Bao here, had the opportunity to chat with him briefly after a performance when Bao brought him here once. And he asked a really interesting question, talking about recycling questions. And so I want to, maybe you've heard him ask you this, but I'd love for you to share your thoughts. He asked, uh, when you write, to whom do you feel responsible? And so I guess that's what I'd like to hear from you. I'm glad you sourced that too. Like, uh, you know, I was trained as a historian. It's important to, yeah. to footnote where you're coming from. It's good. Um, I like that. I think in relation to what, like, the previous answer about my grandparents, you know, um, I feel responsible or accountable to um, my 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 first cousins on my on my mother's side, like. Um, I feel like if I don't get it right in a way that there's a there's a piece in there in the in the book where I actually say something about Andor Walkers, right? <laughs> and I remember I read that in front of my cousins at, at that same table, my grandmother's table, and my and it's like kind of a long poem. And the only thing my cousin said was like, Hey bro, like those walkers weren't on Endor, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, I was like <laughs> and I was like, What? And he goes yeah, there was a line in there where you said something about 
and or walkers. He's like, those weren't the ones you wanted to talk about. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, man, you're talking about the ones you wanted to say the ones from Empire Strikes Back, the ones, uh, you know, and I was like, he's like, yeah, the AT-AT walkers. That's the ones you wanted to talk about. And I was like, oh, shit, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I was like, you know, and and so like I in the poem, I had this like correction where I say explain where I messed up. And then I say, you know, I give thanks to Gabe, Gabe Pacheco for the correction, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was a really sweet moment. In there. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, it was, it's weird because, like, you know, and I feel like because that. You, you changed it in, when you, in your book, you changed tone. Like, you almost become this, like, journalist, like, describing an editorial correction. Yeah. You know, it's like really this, funny. Yeah, it's so out of left field because everything else is so lyrical. Yeah, it's just, like, retraction almost. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but kind of speaks to that who, like, who I'm responsible to because I feel like, um, my cousins are kind of, along with my grandmother, you know, uh, I was the youngest cousin of all of them, so my cousin Gabe in particular is eight years older than me. And then um, my, my other cousins, well, I have one cousin who's my age, but the rest are eight and, and 12 years older than me. So um, I always wanted their attention, so I, would, I became the one who like memorized stuff from TV, would perform it in front of them, you know. Um, and just to get their attention. And um, so whenever we talk to each other, it's always in references, like always from lines from movies, always lines from songs we know, always like some old joke that happened when we were like nine years old or something. And it's just like these callbacks after callbacks after callbacks. And, um, and so in the, in the book, there's a, ton of, there's a ton of things that are just like inside jokes that I hope that you know, my cousins will get, you know, and um, and that's like, oh, this is for us, you know, like even mm-hmm. within this very sort of austere, academic, poetic sort of uh, exterior that there's a place you can go and enter into this poem that's just for us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and like that's kind of speaks to what you said earlier about like I felt like you were talking to me, like these were very specific things that um, hopefully that there's a lot of spaces like that for people to enter in where it, it feels like, oh, this one is just for me. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how I know my siblings don't listen to my podcast because they never check me on anything. <laughs> like, why are you talking about mom like that? Why are you talking about mom like as that? It, hasn't happened. They, they haven't said anything yet. Why are you saying all this stuff about our family? I'm like, I don't know, I'm just talking. <laughs> I mean, because there's something that happens as you interview people, too. There's also a process for me as well. Yeah. All right, well, one more question, then we'll wrap it up for the evening. I might go on one little last soapbox, and that would be it. I'm surprised that you got nothing. Wow. All right. You're so thorough. Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, Miguel, anybody? Miguel, I know you're thinking about something. Come on. I know how much you love Art LeBeau. I appreciate all of that. Um, well, I'm the Art Laveau. You know, I visited LA for the first time. Uh, slow down, slow this down. This past year, and I got the chance to experience uh, driving down Highway 10 on a sunset to Art Laveau, which yeah. is something, you know, as I dropped off my rental car at the airport. And, um, no, I mean, I think, you know, learning about that culture from afar. I'm born and raised here in Minnesota, in St. Paul. Um, it's, you know, it's it's 
you know, for us becomes part of this canon that we feel like we should be familiar with. Mm. And so that kind of more insight outside of what, um, you know, outside of mainstream publication, you know, that I, I really do appreciate that. And just to be able to deconstruct this idea of a broadcast and yeah. how you fit your own story in between that. And I'm a radio person too, by trade, so yeah. um, you wanted to know what I was thinking and that's, that's what I was appreciating as we were reading that poem. Oh, I'm glad I picked on you, that was good. Is there anything you want to end with? What are you thinking? Any final thoughts? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, just thanks, everyone, for just uh, being on this journey with us. I've never done this uh, with an audience, and so that's a little challenging. I, I think um, what's really fun for me about interviewing people, sort of talking about uh, the sort of narrative that you described, people, people have stories about themselves, and they have stories about their past that they really stick to, uh, for better or for worse. Some of it is intentional to conceal things. Some of it's just how they've told, described themselves. And for me, it's always really fun to get them off that train a little bit and to see what else emerges and what sort of intimacy emerges out of that. That's always really, really fun. And uh, as an interviewer too, like uh, a lot of, I get, you know, I'm a part of the conversation too. And there's also just reflections for me and revelations for me that come out of this process that are, are really meaningful just in my development and, and for me as a person. And so. Uh, I just really enjoyed uh, Sean, and thanks a lot for bringing us. Is he gone? He's preparing. Damn it. He's preparing to sell the books. He's preparing all right, all right. Books. Well, yeah. I just want to thank. Well, I'm recording this. It's fine. He doesn't have to be in the room. Uh, I just want to thank Sean for inviting you and inviting me to just interview you. I, I just really That's appreciate fine. him including me and, and allowing me to do this. I've always wanted to have a live audience. Uh, it's really exciting for me. And uh, you know, if I try to do a podcast with stuff that I normally do, nobody would show up. So I never tried. But uh, you brought an audience, dog. <laughs> Thanks, me, Joseph. that was you guys. Or whoever, whatever, <laughs> anyway. <Yeah. laughs> uh, Thank you, everybody. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thanks, Joseph. All right.